Welcome to Integrated Brain Health. My name is Dr. Robert Coben. I'm a clinical neuropsychologist and am board certified in QEG technology and neuromodulation. This is our Neuroscience Rounds podcast. You will get a glimpse into our training programs where we talk about neuroscience, technology, neurofeedback, neuropsychology, and other related matters. We hope this helps with your knowledge base and ability to intervene and help patients successfully. On to the podcast. Hello, welcome to NeuroRounds. Uh, this is round 16 of Dr. Christy Snyder calling, and today we'll be talking about attention. We'll go over uh, the attentional network and we'll talk about some um, dysfunction like confusional states, neglect, and ADHD. So first, what is attention? So there is a limit to the things that we can do. So consciousness is slow, and in order to you know, consciously process something, um, it's kind of an emergent quality of all over the brain, so you have to select some stimuli at the expense of others. Also, we only have limited number of effectors to act on the world. So there's a lot of things going on in the world. You have to select some things to attend to at the expense of other things. And that is what attention is. Um, where is this lifter cognitively is a fascinating question. There's whole realms of cognitive experimental psychology that have been investigating this and some of this my grad work. I could talk about this for hours by itself. Um, so, but just kind of give you a brief overview. So the selector was at first believed to be very low levels. Uh, so it happened before anything was processed. But as we've discussed before, the cocktail party effect. So back when we used to have parties, you'd be in your group talking and you hear someone on the other side of the room say your name. That means that while you weren't consciously aware of what everyone was talking about in the room, what was going on was being processed to some level. And when it became relevant to you, then you became aware of it. Um, so the bottle, the bottleneck or the selector is somewhere else cognitively. And I guess we can discuss that for ages. But um, it can't be so low because you have to determine whether it's relevant to you. And so we think that the selector, um, neuroanatomy-wise uh, anyway, is kind of a joint uh, collaboration of a network of areas that include the neocortex, the thalamus, and the brainstem. So um, you see attentional modulation is inferred when identical events elicit different responses within different contexts. So if you see food sitting on the table but you just ate, that's not really going to stimulate anywhere in the brain because it's not really important. But if you're really hungry, it's definitely going to elicit different kind of neuronal response. So you see this reflected in, again, different uh, selectivity, intensity, and duration of neural responses when something is attended to versus when it is not attended to. So different aspects of attention. Um, there's arousal, which is your level of responsiveness. Um, orientation, so your alignment of sensory um, organs, so what are you attending to, or orienting towards to attend to. You have selective attention, so again, preference of some stimuli over others. Um, it determines the contents of your consciousness, so there's conscious processing of the world around you. You have sustained attention, which is vigilance or concentration. Divided attention, which is heating of several events simultaneously. And exploration, which is searching the scene for a specific stimuli. So attention solves a lot of problems, uh, cognitively wise. Um, you have to detect motivational salience, so is this important to me? 
Um, you had to compile a mental representation of what you see out, what was out there. Um, you had to plan search strategies, um, shift attention from one region to another region. You had to detect deviance or uniformity. So if you're driving and something comes out onto the road, you have to be aware of that. And also anticipation. So if you're looking for your lost dog or something, you have to kind of orient to looking for a certain thing. It's also important for uh, transforming coordinates. So when you see something in the world, it's kind of retinotopic topic coordinates. But if you want to act on that, it has to change the coordinate system. So how does your body have to move to get to that item? So a lot of coordinate transformations are done by attention as well. So um, what is doing this is the attentional matrix. So you have bottom-up stimuli, which is uh, stimulus-driven, um, is uh, mediated by the ascending reticular, uh, reticular activating system. So this is when something happens, a pen drops, a dog darts out in front of you when you're driving, and you're like, oh, okay, it's stimulus-driven. You have top-down, which is goal-driven, it's mediated by the cerebral cortex, internal lobes, so if you're driving around and looking for your lost dog, that's top-down. Um, the combination of these are reflected in your detection efficacy, uh, focusing power, concentration span, online processing capacity, and signal-to-noise ratio. <clears throat> so first we'll talk about the bottom-up components. Again, this is uh, mediated by the ascending reticular activating uh, system. It exerts kind of domain-independent global influence, so kind of at your general arousal level. It is a pacemaker for your EEG rhythms, in the brainstem, thalamus, and nucleus bacillus. Um, it, its activation is necessary but not sufficient for wakefulness and attentiveness. Basically, it does the fine tuning of your attentional tone when you're awake. So, how much attention are you able to attend to right now? Uh, again, it's kind of an attentional valve, so it regulates uh, your arousal level. It's also mediated by uh, neurotransmitters, uh, so a lot of the projections from the brainstem through the, through the thalamus are cholinergic, and this promotes a transformation of information from the thalamus to the cerebral cortex, and again, it modulates signal-to-noise ratios. Also, serotonin is really important uh, for reducing distractibility. It modulates the sensory gating of behaviorally relevant cues in the environment, and then dopamine. Uh, we talked about dopamine a lot, uh, but it's important for um, uh, your responsiveness to motivationally relevant stimuli. Um, okay. So top-down components, this is um, frontal areas, parietal, limbic, and prefrontal cort uh, cortices. Um, they're sensitive to context, motivation, acquired significance, and conscious volition. Uh, the prefrontal and the posterior parietal cortices are top-down influence. Um, <clears throat> Um, domain-specific attentional modulation. So again, kind of your um, volitional regulation. So top-down, goal-oriented. Uh, it's really important for working memory. Working memory has two um, two components. One is the online maintenance of information. Um, so that's if someone tells you their phone number, you have to remember it really quickly, or it's kind of online. Uh, the prefrontal cortex and the posterior parietal cortex. We'll talk about these two separate areas in more detail. And you also have the active manipulation of the information done by the quote-unquote central executive. So if you have to do mental math or something. And this is mostly done by the prefrontal dorsolateral cortex. So we think the prefrontal neurons are really important for protecting the contents of working memory. So they have this task um, where they show monkeys uh, a stimulus, so a certain symbol, we'll call it A. 
and they show other symbols, so A, B, C, D, different symbols, and A shows up again. And it's supposed to react and they see the same symbol again. So they see some neurons in the prefrontal neuron and the prefrontal cortex that are active in the meantime. So they show up when A is presented and they stay active until A is presented again. So it maintains the information in working memory. Okay, um, also the limbic system is really important uh, for attention. So because that modulates motivation, emotions. Um, so it induces potential modulation and impact of sensory events according to their emotional and motivational salience. Uh, mood and motivation surround the influence, allocation of attention, like I said, degree of hunger. If you see food, if you're not hungry, that's not really going to do anything for you, but if you are hungry, you're definitely going to attend to it. Uh, parietal and prefrontal regions mediate the effect of motivation. Uh, <clears throat> so uh, they have some neurons that are active only when uh, the reward is really high versus uh, not. Um, again, the food um, activation. Uh, there are some neurons that are firing when you look at food when you're hungry and liquid when you're thirsty. Okay, so there are all these different components of a vast attentional network. Um, so the parietal components uh, is part of one of the um, nodes of this network. I circled it here. Uh, so it's right throughout the confluence of vision, audition, sensory. So we talked about heteromodal areas in a previous round, so this is kind of that area. is right there in the uh, midst of all the action. So it's well positioned to mediate sensory motor cognitive integration of spatial attention because it has all the information coming to it. There are four components. There's the superior parietal, which is Robin's areas five and seven. Up top, it's somatosensory association areas. Um, posterior part of Robin's area seven is a heteromodal processing area. The inferior parietal um, lobule is from um, area 39 and 40 down here. Again, heteromodal association cortex. The interparietal sulcus, informed for sensory motor, uh, visuospatial processing. And then uh, the medial parietal cortex, which is the anterior parts of 5 and 7, uh, which is sensory motor, and then the heteromodal cortex of Brown's area is 7, <clears throat> and 31, which is kind of towards the medial part. Um, the lateral uh, <clears throat> interparietal sulcus. This is a monkey brain here, so you can see it here. It's called the <clears throat> sorry the posterior eye field, which has a critical role in coordinating eye movements. So it triggers eye movements in response to a stimulation, and it kind of gives directionally tuned responses. So prior to the saccade, so you see a target, and you have the intent to move there. Uh, these cells are active in the meantime before you actually make the movement. It also brings auditory and visual information into a common frame of reference. Uh, so you hear something and you have to turn your head to, <clears throat> towards it. It kind of helps you have a holistic frame of reference that it combines both hearing and vision. 7A, which is there, um, it codes attentional factors. So it, there are no cells that are specific to a color or shape, uh, identity or location, but they do become active if it is related to reward. So if something is paired with a reward, it will definitely become active. Um, and so there's a role in encoding map of salience. So 7A says whether it's important, and then LIP helps you to move towards it. So they're both really important for coordinate transformations. As I mentioned before, remapping. So you see something in the retinotopic 
um, coordinate system, you have to change that to egocentric. So how do I use that information to be able to coordinate my body to um, act on that? So LIP uses proprioception information, and 7A uses vestibular and environmental landmarks to help do that coordinate transformation. Uh, BA5, uh, medial portion of the parietal cortex, it also has a role in spatial attention uh, relevant for reading, uh, reaching, grasping, and tactile search. Um, some nice sensory receptive fields are directly tuned, uh, so arm and body centered coordinates. So again, you see the information out there, or you feel it, so how do you move towards it to uh, act with it? Um, yes, and these um, neurons are active in the meantime, so before you actually move, so they're helping you plan movement towards it. Okay, the frontal eye fields here, and the frontal lobe here, it's important for mainly motor or covert shifts of attention, but they've also seen um, activity for covert shifts, so keep your eyes on a central fixation, but attend to this region over here versus actually moving your eyes. Um, the frontal eye fields are projections to the premotor, premotor areas, premotor areas, striatum, superior clavicles, and subthalamic nucleus. So they help, they have direct access to pathways to that control the head, eyes, and limb movements necessary for scanning the environment. Um, they are profoundly influenced by, and probably also profoundly influenced, the visual information. So if it's directly what you're looking at, obviously, um, plays a role in what you're seeing. Um, there are also extensive input from the limbic areas, which are reward and motivation. So uh, it helps you to move your eyes or your body towards things that are um, you know, relevant motivationally to your interpersonal space. You also have the supplementary eye field, which is a little bit higher here, um, and that um, helps with motor plans that are object-centered. There is a lot of relationship between the frontal and parietal nodes of the potential network. We talk a lot about like frontal lobe syndrome and some of the, like I said before, we did a whole um, nerve rounds on the heteromodal areas of the parietal cortex and how that um, plays a major role in spatial tension. So these two nodes of the potential network are really interrelated. Uh, the sensory, so this is the sensory representations that are done by the parietal lobe are necessary for guiding exploration. Exploration, which is done by the motor or frontal lobes, are necessary for updating the representations. So you have the representation, you explore your environment, you update the representation. So these are really interconnected. So the FEF and the posterior parietal have common connections. So they both get the same information. And this helps you to relay a vast uh, amount of information uh, for motivational salience, their special relationships, and it helps support parallel processing. So it's not that you do one thing and then the other, it's all processed at the same time. Um, so just like we talked about, we talked about Wernicke's area, how that's not a repository for verbal language information. The posterior parietal is also not a repository, but it's one of these uh, transmodal multilateral gateways that kind of connect the dots. So it links channels of information that you get from different sources, um, and it links it to different kind of motor output. So you get all the information from all these different sensory inputs, vision, sometimes sensory audition, and then it channels to how you're going to interact with your environment. That's just the eye movements or hand movement and a reach. And the frontal eye field plays a critical role in um, converting plans and attentions to actual motor acts. 
Um, selects the sequences of individual acts to navigate your environment. The limbic um, part, which is singular gyrus, plays a critical role in identifying motivational relevance in a picture of uh, personal space and sustaining the level of effort um, during a task. So the phenomenon of spatial attention and attention in general is not sequential, but it's kind of an additive and emergent uh, process phenomenon that emerges from all these different sources of information. It's pretty fascinating. Like I said cognitive psychology does a lot of experiments on this that we can talk for hours on. So uh, now I'm going to talk about some uh, syndromes or dysfunctions of attention. First, an acute confusional state. The symptoms of acute confusional state are defective vigilance, um, your attention kind of wanders aimlessly or inappropriately or gets inappropriately focused on a relevant stimuli. Skilled behaviors, like even using utensils, become uh, vulnerable to influence and perseveration. Your stream of thought loses coherence due to frequent intrusions from competing thoughts or sensations. Hallucinations, delusions, agitation, disorientation, dysgraphia, dyscalculia, dyscalculia. So if you think you're in deep sleep and this throws you awake, you get a phone call, you need to write something down. You can't like grab a pencil or your pen, you're like using the wrong hand or whatever. So that is an acute confusional state that of course goes away once you begin having more wakefulness. Uh, but it's, it's one we've probably all experienced. Um, these kind of acute confusional states that are not caused by just waking up from a deep slumber um, have other causes. One is toxic metabolic encephalopathy. Um, it's caused by interference in nutritional requirements. So your acid-base balance, electrolyte environments, uh, hepatic failure, anemia, hyperglycemia, anoxia, acidosis. Also withdrawal from alcohol, if you uh, have severe alcohol dependence, barbiturates, opiates, psychoactive dro drugs, sedatives, tranquilizers. And this is mostly due to a uh, interference in neurotransmitters, specifically uh, cholinergic. Also environmental stressors in vulnerable individuals, uh, sensory deprivation, if you immobilize someone after kind of a trauma, so they get in a car wreck and you immobilize them, they have an acute confusional state. Uh, interference with circadian rhythms, so if you're in intensive care units, and also um, elderly people who have pre-existing neurological diseases can also get those. You can also have multifocal brain lesions um, that might be caused by meningitis, which is swelling of the brain, anoxia, uh, fat embolism, or closed head injury, like a concussion, uh, seizures, could disrupt the electrical or structural integrity of the articular activating system. Also, focal lesions uh, that interfere with like the prefrontal region or the posterior parietal region, as we just discussed, are really important because they interfere with the top-down modulation of the attentional matrix. Also, um, of course, space occupying lesions. If you have a tumor, that would definitely cause it. Another interesting phenomenon is neglect. Uh, so we have briefly talked about neglect a few times. So uh, when you have attentional neglect, you behave as half of the universe doesn't exist. So you may not shave or groom or dress one side. You'll fail to eat food on one side of the plate. You'll invent reading words on the left side. It usually happens on the left side. And then like you see these pictures here, there's a, they leave a really wide left margin. If you ask them to draw a clock, they'll only draw the right side of the clock. Uh, this is not a disorder of seeing, hearing, or moving. It is a sort of looking, detecting, listening, and exploring. So uh, some ways that you see neglect or can test neglect is by the uh, line bisection test. 
So uh, you draw a line, say, draw a line down the center, uh, a perpendicular line down the center of the line that we draw horizontally. And if you're neurologically intact, you'll be a little bit to the left of center. But if you are a neglect patient, you'll be all the way to the right. And the degree of rightness depends on the length of the line. So they think this is evidence that the information is getting processed. They are seeing the whole line. Um, but the representation of the line, the brain builds, the mind builds, it can't see the left side of that line. So the visual information gets in there, but the representation, the cognitive representation, cannot be accessed. So they tend to move it further to the left if the line is longer. So this idea that neglect happens to the cognitive representation, you see that in many other experiments. So they have um, one task where they say, take a very common um, scene that you know well. I guess this experiment is done in Milan because they ask people to look towards the cathedral, uh, the Piazza del Duomo in Milan, which looks like a beautiful place. Um, and so they ask them, okay, imagine yourself at one side of the plaza, you're looking at the cathedral. Tell me about the landmarks. And they say, well, they kind of list off things on the right side. And then they say, okay, now imagine yourself standing in front of the cathedral. Now tell me about the landmarks. And then they'll say, again, talk about things that happen on the right side. But those things were on the left side from the other imaginary perspective. So even though they couldn't uh, report them on the first task, they couldn't the second task. So the information is in there. It's just the mind's eye cannot access the left part of the cognitive representation. Um, you also see neglect dyslexia, so you don't read the words on the left, or even if the word is centrally presented, they won't read the left part of the word. Um, sometimes the neglect will respect morphological or lexical structure. Um, Non-words are more prone to neglect than real words. Um, so this is again evidence that if the real word is processed but non-words aren't, and the whole word is being perceived, um, and you process the whole word as a unit, whereas non-words are perceived as a sequence of individual units. Uh, so again, it's the representation of the scene that is neglected, usually on the left. Well, some other experiments. I had a fun time with this. Uh, so one experiment, uh, they, they show you two line drawings of houses um, centrally presented, and then one of them has flames drawn on the left side, and one of them doesn't. And they say, is there any difference between these two pictures? And the subjects will say, no, they're the same picture. And then they say, well, which house do you want to live in? And then they all pick the ones without flames, but they can't say why they like that house or the other house. So again, it's being processed at some level, but they can't articulate uh, as it doesn't like, reach consciousness. Another experiment is similar. They had two identical banknotes presented uh, centrally and said, what's the difference between these two things? They said, nothing. It's the exact same thing. But one of them was torn on the left side. And so they said, they said, which note do you prefer? And they all chose the note that wasn't torn on the left side. So again, it is being, the visual information is getting in there, um, but it's just representation. So it's not necessarily just the left kind of visual field, it's the left side of the object as the mind kind of represents it. Um, so the functional anatomy of unilateral neglect uh, it's usually a right-sided lesion. Lesions on the right side cause left neglect. Left lesions typically do not cause right neglect. So I think the theory is that the right side has bilateral attention, but the left side only has right side attention. Um, they used to think that um, lesions had to be only in the parietal lobe, 
The more recent research has shown a neglect-like syndrome. If there is a lesion in the frontal lobe, stimulant gyrus, striatum, and thalamus, which is again part of this whole rotational network. Um, so you can see neglect even if the lesion is not necessarily in the parietal region, but that's usually where you see it. Okay, so uh, ADHD uh, is one of the most common attentional um, dysfunctions that we obviously we see here. It affects three to seven percent of school-aged children. In order to be diagnosed with ADHD, even as an adult, you had to have the symptoms before you were seven years old. There are three subtypes. They're inattentive. This affects girls more than boys. Um, easily distracted, forgetful, misplacing items, difficulty focusing and staying on task. My husband will tell you that is me. Um, there's hyperactive subtype uh, that boys have more than girls, either fidgety and impatient, impulsive and overly talkative. And there's a combined or mixed type that have symptoms of both uh, of, the, of these two subtypes. So ADHD has affective components, so you have lack of emotional control, you'll have poor or inappropriate motivation, so sometimes you don't want to do anything, sometimes you only want to do one thing. Um, you'll have intentional cognitive components uh, that are affected, so you'll have problem problem solving, um, problem with planning, especially time estimation, so you know your friends who have ADHD who can never get there on time, <laughs> Uh, they have poor temporal foresight, um, problem orienting, alerting, cognitive flexibility. Uh, this is, like you see, the Wisconsin car screen task. Uh, response inhibition and working memory. You also have motor components for ADHD. So these people have poor motor coordination, they'll be clumsy, they'll have poor handwriting. So you have a strong genetic contribution. So the hereditary ability is between 60 and 90%. Um, there are genes that are implicated that are related mostly to the regulation of neurotransmitters, and specifically dopamine, norepinephrine. There are a lot of environmental factors that they have found related to ADHD. So prenatal factors, uh, maternal alcohol exposure, uh, they'll have structural brain anomalies in the cerebellum. And these children are frequently hyperactive, disruptive, um, impulsive. Also maternal smoking increases the risk of ADHD for the child almost threefold. Uh, perinatal factors are low birth weight and pregnancy and birth complications, and then postnatal factors are nutritional deficiencies, specifically fatty acids, omega-3 and 6, and then the deprivation of a social environment when you're very young. And it's like strong deprivation that you see like Romanian orphanages. Okay, there's a lot of stuff going on in the brain with ADHD. So again, the frontal striatal network that we've been discussing, um, that whole network seems to be disruptive. Lateral prefrontal cortex, dorsal anterior cingulate, and the caudate nucleus and putamen. So putamen, uh, dorsal anterior cingulate, um, caudate nucleus here. Um, there's also hypo or low activity in kind of the same regions, anterior cingulate, dorsal lateral prefrontal, inferior prefrontal, orbital frontal, basal ganglia, thalamus, and parietal cortex. There's a reduction in volume in the kind of total cerebral volume the prefrontal cortex, basal ganglia, anterior, uh, dorsal anterior cingulate, corpus callosum, which is connected to hemispheres, and the cerebellum, uh, which again is motor control. There's a delay in brain maturation by about three years. Um, this is most prominent in the frontal lobe. And then white matter abnormalities, again, the corpus callosum, which connects, connects it to hemispheres, inferior parietal, occipital parietal, inferior frontal, inferior temporal cortex. 
So what this means is that, that there's decreased speed in the connections and the communications with the neurons. So the front can't talk to the posterior parietal as fast as it would otherwise. Okay, so as far as treatments, as I mentioned before, the genes that are related to ADHD have to do with a neurotransmitter, specifically dopamine and norepinephrine. So what you see is a dysregulation of norepinephrine, which is norepinephrine, and dopamine. So the medications that are typically given to ADHD um, patients, uh, methylphenidate and dextromethamphetamine, work on these two neurotransmitters. They increase dopamine signaling um, by blocking dopamine reuptake, increasing extracellular levels, dopamine and disinhibiting, uh, disinhibiting the receptors. Same thing, it inhibits norepinephrine reuptake. Kind of both of these medications do that. So that's why we give you stimulants. Um, however, uh, there's also neurofeedback for ADHD. So what you see on uh, the EEG typically is a frontal slowing for a high amplitude theta. So the kind of traditional neurofeedback is SMR training, uh, sensory motor training for across the midline to decrease theta and increase theta. Uh, sometimes I'll use alpha theta training. Um, however, there are lots of different ADHD profiles that we've seen with EEG. So some of the profiles have access to delta, theta, alpha, and beta. So it's not very good to use a one-size-fits-all because that's not the case. So what we do here is definitely we look at the brain. We see what kind of profiles that specific patient's brain are demonstrating. And then we will look at which regions of the brain. Is it more parietal? Is it more frontal? So we'll develop a protocol that um, addresses your specific excesses of activity and which regions of the brain um, aren't functioning as optimally as possible. Okay, and that is attention. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. Feel free to subscribe to the Neuroscience Rounds podcast for future episodes. You might also enjoy our sister podcast, Let's Head On, with myself and Dr. Ann Stevens, where we discuss the interaction between neuroscience, neuropsychology, and physical and mental well-being. Please feel free to reach out to us at integratebrainhealth.com.